The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 19th chapter. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down on, to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the Gospel of the Lord. When I was a kid growing up, you all know we lived on a farm, but like many farms in Logan County and Iroquois County and most counties in the Midwest, it had a lot of outbuildings that were now unused. Buildings that were relics of a bygone era in farming. Buildings that had really no more purpose, it's just they were too expensive to tear down or had maybe too much sentimental value to the people living on the farm to let go of. I always see old barns and like the old barn at my parents' house and I get kind of sad to be quite honest, thinking about those simpler times, times when work involved, well, a lot more physical labor than it does now. Not saying I want that, but <laughs> you do know it built a little more character back then when it was getting the horses ready instead of just turning the key. Well, times change and tech does too. Horses and hay have been replaced by tractors and diesel fuel. And it is sad when something, the purpose of something is lost, when it goes away, when it has outlived its function. It's sad to see that. But it's worse and it's more sad when that purpose is abused instead of being lost. After God created the world, we all know that on the seventh day, he rested. Whatever God resting looks like, that's what happened. And later on, for Old Testament Israel, God instituted the Sabbath day, the seventh day to be a day of rest for his people, a day in which they would not labor, they would not work, and set aside to hear and remember the God who had made promises to them. And naturally, there were prescriptions, that is, things that were prohibited for Israel to do. Don't do this on the Sabbath. Don't do that on the Sabbath. But over the years after that law was given from God to the people, the rabbis came in and they added to those laws. They added bylaws to the Constitution, as it were. They came up with ideas about, well, you can't go on a journey on the Sabbath, so what constitutes a journey? How many steps can you go? Can you go to the restroom on the Sabbath? Can you go to the kitchen to get some food? Is that a journey? Well, no. Okay. Well, can you go from Judea to Samaria? Is that a journey? Well, yes. So there must be a line somewhere. And they came up with these lines. They came up with these rules to delineate what's work and what is not work. And soon after a while, those rules that they came up with became the thing that they, the Pharisees, focused on. If you keep these rules that we have hedged this law of God in around, well, then you have kept the law of God. And along the way, they came up with all sorts of hair-splitting definitions of what work actually was. So it is when Jesus, as he does multiple times, healed someone on the Sabbath, when he found a man with a withered hand, for instance, and healed him of that withered hand on the Lord's Sabbath, they went ballistic, the Pharisees. 
the people who were the guardians of these bylaws, these made-up rules. Never mind that man's need to have his hand not be withered up and unusable. Never mind the obvious good that it was that this man Jesus should heal him. They were upset. It's apparent, and we can understand how the Sabbath came to be not overlooked, not forgotten, not outlived its purpose, but abused, changed into something that it was not intended to be by the people who should have been its guardians. Such abuse in the gospel lesson today is on full display in the temple in Jerusalem. You see, before Jesus, by his own death and resurrection, abolished the need for that temple, before he had done that, the temple was a good thing. The temple was the focal point for the worship of God's people, Israel, after they had entered Cana. God gave Old Testament worship to Israel at Sinai. We know that. The Leviticus laws, the laws that about killing this animal at this time for this purpose and offering this animal at this time for this purpose. He had given all of that at Sinai for how to show their faithfulness and to the echoes of Christ who would come. But as the people moved around, their worship focus in those sacrifices had to move with them with the Ark of the Covenant. So what did they have? The tabernacle, the big tent that they would set up around the Ark and with the altar for the sacrifices wherever they would stay during their sojourning in the wilderness. And they would move around as God's pillar of fire or smoke bid them. But finally, after the 40 years were done and the generations that had rebelled had passed, we know they crossed the Jordan, entered Cana, conquered it, Canaan, conquered it, and then after a few generations, finally, under King Solomon, the tabernacle was replaced with the temple on the mount in Jerusalem. And though it was stone instead of fabric, it had the same purpose of the tabernacle. But this is the difference, though, from that time. Israel, by the time the temple was built, was no longer a nomadic people. They were no longer mostly herdsmen who had animals, goats, cattle, birds of whatever at their fingertips to just sacrifice and grab one out of the family herd to go over to the tabernacle to do. No, for generations they had been settled in the land. They had built up their homes, their towns and their cities, and quite frankly, like today, not everybody was a farmer. Not everybody could just go grab some grain for that thank offering, grab the bull for the sin offering, or the like. They could not do that, and so the sacrifices that they were still required to do in the Jerusalem temple were, for those people, impractical. They were difficult for them to do. They had to go out of their way to acquire the necessary animals to perform the obligation to the Lord. And so naturally, what would happen? What happens in any society and situation where you have this market need, to use economic terms, and you have a market demand, right? Well, I guess that's the same thing. People come in and fill the gap. Vendors came in. You almost can kind of picture how it happened when it started at first. Well, we had people come into Jerusalem to make the sacrifice, and they didn't have it. So they were buying things from the person outside of the town, maybe over by Bethlehem. They got their goat, and, but then they had to walk the seven miles, and that was a lot of work. Well, maybe if we set up, you know, goats are us here at the gates of Jerusalem, this will be a big help to the people. But then eventually, what happened is, goats are us was doing good, but Roy figured out that it's better if you sell inside the temple to the people or the temple court. It's right there. I'm sorry, Roy, you're just right there wearing blue. I had to pick on you. 
But that's what happened, wasn't it? We don't have the documents that say how it developed, but over time, eventually, the temple of God in Jerusalem had vendors all around it. What was the focal point for the worship of God's people had salesmen leading up to the way to get into it. And that was what the money changers were from our gospel lesson today. The need was met. And it was a lucrative business at that. Like any business that has a high market demand, you can make a lot of money if you know where to be and what to do. And you get those three things right. Location, location, location. And so much did this thing become a big deal that in that place, the temple of God, not the worship of God was the focus, but the money and the business to be had, the profit to be made. The temple in Jerusalem had in effect become Walmart. Its original purpose was overshadowed. Its original purpose was abused. Sometimes things evolve. They change barns and horses and farming, and it's not necessarily wrong. If you're like me, you can lament that most barns, old barns, stand empty. Maybe just have some dust and hay and various evidence of animals living in them up in the hayloft. And you can be sad about that. It's not wrong. There's nothing wrong, nothing morally wrong with it. But other times things do change for the worse. Their change is not a good one. The purpose, the original purpose and good that they had was becomes overshadowed, becomes abused, or in some cases even completely eliminated. The Jews of Jesus' day, as we heard and know very well from the Gospels, were not immune to it. But the thing is, neither are we in our time and our place. And that's why this Sunday in the church year, Trinity 10, is important for us to consider. Christianity being a member of Jesus Christ's body, the church, has a clear and central and unmistakable purpose. The forgiveness of sins and his blood, and through that forgiveness, each one of us having full fellowship and a good, perfect relationship with our God. It's why the church exists. It's why we gather together in this thing called Calvary Lutheran Church. It's why I, as the pastor, preach sermons to you. It's why when people, babies or grown-ups, whoever come to be baptized or baptized, it's why we have this communal meal called the Lord's Supper. Like the Old Testament Sabbath in its day, like the temple in its day, in its good day, these things have a very good purpose. But sometimes they risk getting lost in the weeds. They risk having their good purpose and reason overshadowed or even abused in favor of something else. What are the weeds? Well, for some churches, I think, and some pastors in particular, I think it's pandering to the world, trying to make the church look more like the world so maybe we can just kind of trick people into becoming Christians. If we just sort of play to their tune, then they will come and join us. So examples of that would be churches that have buildings, denominations, names, everything, all of the trappings that I just mentioned, preaching, baptizing, and communion, but they have completely lost their faithful apostolic voice to call a spade a spade, to say what God's word has said about this sin and this grace, this truth, this reality. They don't say that, 
because they don't want to offend anyone. Maybe perhaps we in the Missouri Synod also struggle with that corporately. Maybe I struggle with it, maybe Calvary does, but to be quite honest, I think our personal temptations are a little more subtle than that. They're a little more hard to detect. There are fringe benefits to being a Christian, to belonging to a congregation of believers in a local place. One of the biggest ones is the social or communal aspect of being a part of a congregation. My friends go there. My family goes there. I have fellowship with people I like to see. That's a benefit, isn't it? If you're shaking your head no, then we should talk afterwards, because that's one of the best parts about being a Christian. It's a good thing. There's the musical aspect of worship. I can sing. I like singing. I like singing the liturgy. I like singing the hymns. And it scratches your heads. I like singing the hard-to-sing German hymns, right? There's probably maybe like 1.2 of you out there that agrees with me on that, and that's okay too. Some people like the church for that reason. Some people like the church because of every once in a while, at least for me, you get an uplifting, hopeful message, and you leave feeling really good about yourself and your day and your week, a message that makes you feel good. That's all fine. These are all good things in and of themselves. They're benefits, but only up until they take the place of Jesus Christ on the throne of what we care most about with church and being Christians. It's not wrong to enjoy fellowship, to say hi to your friends and to be with your friends at church. It's not wrong to like singing if you come to church. It's not wrong even to want to feel good after a sermon instead of blah or bad, okay? That's not wrong. But it's wrong to let any of these things, good as they are, to drown out the one thing needful to take the focus of our Lord, the Lamb that was slain. For if that happens, we are ourselves, if you think about it, no different than the money changers that took the good thing in the temple and abused it, and were looking past it to their own earthly ends. Just because we know the truth doesn't safeguard us from forgetting it. It doesn't safeguard us from ever wanting to change or ignore it. Sabbath laws... They all began with good intentions. The money changers, they initially provided a good service before our Lord came and flipped their tables over. So to avoid their mistake of how they evolved negatively, let's learn from it. Don't let the small stuff, good as it is, ever take the place of the big thing. Don't replace the treasure of the gospel with something of infinitely less value. And believe me, everything is of less value. Jesus Christ has won freedom for us to live in him. And all else, good as it is, can finally lead us away from him or past him if we let it. So let's keep our eye on the true prize and walk all of the days of our life to that prize, ready to give up all the rest when the time comes so that we may be with him forever. In his name, amen.